duty as Christians. Okay? So today we're going to cover Ephesians chapter 2. Um, would you take out your Bibles now and turn there? Okay, and I think we will need to just keep referring to, to the passage. I'm going to try to look at it in some detail today. Now, I know that these uh, first three chapters, okay, or, or even like a, a book study, may be a little bit more challenging. Right? It's not like our, our dating series. It's not really um, a bunch of, of stories. Right? But, but let's believe this about the Word. Okay? That firstly, um, Scripture is living and active. Right? Like Hebrews 4 says, it's not just some old ancient book that uh, has no relevance today. Right? This book is completely relevant to our life. Okay? God's Word is alive. It's active. He speaks to us through His Word. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It will cut through your heart. And that's why I'm praying today that it will cut you, cut us to the heart. Okay? And let's also believe um, 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed. Right? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, that's us, the people of God, will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay? Now, um, in preparing for this, uh, and also because um, I think a few months ago I had um, an assignment to do on Ephesians, I've been... Uh, reading this letter uh, a, a few times, um, rereading it and reading it, and and you know I I think it's a great letter. The whole letter of Ephesians, I, like sometimes I read it, and I'm just like, yes, yes, you know, because it it's really like the basic fundamentals of Christianity, and and you know it's 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 like a powerful, awesome message. Um, about what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, okay? And I really believe that whether you're a, a young and new believer or whether you've been a Christian for years and years and years, that as we read Ephesians, if we would open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit, we are going to be moved anew and blown away again by the good news, by the great news that is found in Jesus. And, and if anyone, is here, anyone here is, is not a Christian, this message is for you, okay. So, I, I'm really excited to preach today. I hope you are ready. I'll try to stop shouting. Let's, let's, start, um, let's, start, by, let's start by reading uh, the, the chapter, okay. So, I'm going to read it out, okay. But I, I, I want you to do one thing, okay. Um, I'm going to read a passage. And there will be two points where there's the word, but. Okay. And then, at the word, but. We are all going to give a super loud cheer, okay? Okay? So it'll be like, but, what? Okay? 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 Ganesh is like, I hate you right now. Okay? Okay? The but is important, okay? The but makes all difference, all right? Okay, so let's start. Ephesians chapter 2. Um, I'm reading from the ESV. I shall put it on the screen as well. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... Hey, this side, this side, not too good, huh? This side, okay. But 
God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, next part. Verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Okay. Very good, very good. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today, we ask that God, your Holy Spirit, will come and speak to us. And God, as we look at the truth of your word, we pray that it will move us and, and, and that it will transform our lives and renew our minds. So we ask Holy Spirit to come and speak today, come and be at the center, come and reign in this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we look at Ephesians 2 today, um, the chapter can be divided into two parts, okay? Most Bibles would have already split the, two, the, the parts into two headings, right? It would be verse 1 to 10, and then verses 11 to 22. And in each of these parts, I want to suggest that the structure is something like this, okay? First, Paul talks about what we used to be. Then there is this, but God, and there's that, that's the pivot that's the pivot, that's like the turning point. And then he talks about what we have now become. Okay, what we used to be and what we've become. So, let me just lay it out for you first. That first part, verse 1 to 10, we were dead, but God, he made us alive. Second part, verses 11 to 22, we were far away, but God, but Jesus, we have been brought near. Okay, so that, that's the rough, like a very rough structure, a guide as we, as we go through the passage, okay? Now, let's look at the first part, okay? Verse 1 to 10. What did we used to be? Dead. Okay? Right at the start, 
um, very clear, Ephesians 2, 1 says that before Jesus, we were dead in our sins. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were spiritually dead. Without God, we have no life, right? We don't have true, uh, eternal, abundant life. Remember um, earlier we did the 7 I Am series, right, in, in John, and we talked about how Jesus is the bread of life. He's the spring of living water. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? True life is found only in Jesus Christ. You know, some of you may have heard a song like, Life Without Jesus is Like a Donut, right? Life Without Jesus is Like a Donut, right? Now, I mean, I, mean I, I, know what, I know what the song is trying to say, but actually, life without Jesus is, is a contradiction. There's no life without Jesus. It's an oxymoron. You know, life without Jesus is not a donut. It's death. There's no life without Jesus. Because you must understand that without Jesus, it's not that like, we are like, quite bad people, like, oh yeah, okay, we all have some flaws, and then, and then we come to Jesus, and you know, Jesus makes us better people. No! Christianity is not like a self-help religion to make you a, a more decent and a more moral person, you know? It's not about um, moral values or being a good person, right? I believe I've said this before, that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And, and I think sometimes we forget this, you know? We, we, we tend to think like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm not perfect, but you know, I also, I haven't murdered anyone. You know, I don't steal. Like, okay, I know I'm a sinner, but hey, I come to church every week, you know? I mean, I even serve, and oh, there are tons of people out there worse than me, you know? And sometimes um, when we, we talk about the difference that God has made in our lives, I've actually heard people say things like, oh, actually, before, before I became a Christian, um, I, I, I was always quite, quite mild, lah, you know? I, I wasn't really a bad person. So, I guess when I became a Christian, you know, it was... What? That's absolute rubbish. Before becoming a Christian, you were dead. You were dead in your sin. There is, there is no doubt about it. There's no, there's, nothing, there's no such thing as half dead, right? There's no such thing as like, oh, I was a little bit dead. No, you were dead. Sin is sin. And death is death. And before Christ, we were all dead in our sin. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And verse 2 goes on to elaborate, okay? The three sources of this deadly disease called sin. The first is the world, okay? We were all born into a world already infected with sin, right? We just talked about this um, in the dating series, right? The ways of this world, you know, um, our culture, uh, what's on social media, etc. They are very often the complete opposite of the truth and holiness of God. And when we conform to the ways of this world, we remain dead in our sin. And then there is the devil. Paul here calls him the prince of the power of the air. The evil one exists and he is real. It would be naive to think otherwise. And without Jesus, without Christ, we are under the influence of the evil one. In fact, if you read the book of Ephesians, Ephesians always talks about the spiritual realm. You know, Ephesians 1 says that Jesus is seated in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. 
right? In the last chapter, Ephesians 6, it says, take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh or blood, but against the powers, the rulers, authorities of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of the heavenly realms. There is a spiritual realm. There are evil spirits at work. And because the devil is at work, a spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, without Christ, we remain enslaved in our sin. We remain dead in our sin. And finally, we are influenced, we are under the influence of sin because of our own flesh, right? Our own sinful nature, the fallen, selfish nature of man, right? And, and we struggle with passions of the flesh. And so sin is not just in our environment, it's not just an external thing that plagues us, but it's our hereditary, human, fallen nature. And so the Bible says, before Christ, we were dead in our sin. We were under the influence and bondage of the world, the devil, and our flesh. And therefore, we are condemned. It says we are children of wrath. And this wrath is God's righteous judgment. Because God is holy and perfect, He detests anything that is evil and sinful. And Paul says here, like the rest of mankind... We were children of wrath. We lay under the dreadful judgment of God. And so before Christ, without Christ, we are dead. We are in bondage to the world, to the devil, to sin, and we are condemned. Now, I know this is not a pre-picture, and I'm sorry I start by just like whacking you all like this. But you know, I believe that we really need to understand and fully appreciate how dead and gone we are in ourselves. Dead people cannot save and cannot help themselves. There is absolutely nothing they can do. They can't do anything. And if we don't realize the spiritual deadness and the, the, the dead state of mankind of ourselves, then we continue to, to try and naively think that superficial remedies will help, right? And we try to find life in, in like being successful or being popular or, or doing good deeds, or doing well in school, or having a boyfriend or girlfriend, etc. But all this will not help your spiritually dead state. They will not rescue you from death, deadness, from bondage to sin. They will not rescue you from the wrath of God. The unbeliever without Christ is not sick and in, a need, in need of just little help. He is dead, dead in his sin. Therefore, what we need is resurrection life because we are dead. What we need is freedom because we are enslaved. And what we need is forgiveness and mercy because we are condemned. And, and I really hope everyone of here, every one of us here gets it. You know, that we didn't, it's not that we just, we just kind of suck as people. No, we were dead. We were corpses. Because you won't understand the light of the gospel until you understand the darkness. You won't understand the gospel, the good news, until you've seen and you understand the terror, the bad news, that hell is real, the devil is real, sin is real, and sin is a big deal. We were dead. There was not one ounce of life in us. We had absolutely no hope, no way we could save ourselves. Human beings can do nothing about sin except hide and disguise it. Remember Adam and Eve? Once they sinned, there was nothing they could do about it. And so to understand, to really understand the good news, we first have to understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and the wages of sin is death. The gospel is actually bad news before it's good news. And you won't understand how good the good news is until you realize how bad the bad news is. And that's why many people reject the gospel or, or they, don't, they just don't care for it or they think they're fine without it because they don't realize that mankind without Jesus is dead. You're not just a donut with a hole in the middle missing something, you're dead. The gospel is a gospel for hopeless and dead people, for people who face the wrath of God, sinful humanity facing the judgment and the anger of a holy God. We were completely dead in our sin. But God, but God, and listen to the sweet sound of this, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the good news. That's the good news. What we used to be, we used to be dead. But God, but God in His mercy, in His love, in His grace, makes all the difference. And what we've become is now alive. That's the good news. We were dead, but now we're alive. And that's why we say we are born again. We are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You know, being a Christian, becoming a Christian is nothing short of a resurrection miracle. That's why in two weeks' time, when we witness the baptism of our brothers, they are going to go down into the water like they were dead, and then they will rise up like they are raised up, resurrected. We were dead, but God raised us up. Just like God raised Jesus from the dead. We read about this power in the previous chapter, Ephesians 1.20, right? This incomparably great power of God to raise Christ from the dead. You know, friends, if this doesn't blow us away, then I, I'm not sure why we would call ourselves Christians. If this does not blow us away. You see, against, set against the desperate condition of man is the powerful and sovereign activity of God. His great act of grace. You see, He is a God of wrath, but he is also a God of great love. He's absolutely holy, and therefore he detests sin, he detests evil, but he's also a God of great love. Verse 4, he is rich in mercy. If God was only just, then we're, we're dead. We will all remain dead in our sin. But he's also a God of love, mercy, grace, kindness. As we will see in the next few verses. Now, what has God done? Okay, look at the first three on this side, okay? The, the, the alive rose side, okay? God has, verse 5, made us alive with Christ. Verse 6, He has raised us up with Christ and He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, okay? Made us alive, raised us up, seated us. That is resurrection, ascension, and seated in the heavenly places. And you know, this is what Jesus did, Right? Jesus was resurrected. He went up to heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And Paul is saying that we share in all this that Jesus did. Isn't that cool? We share in his resurrection. Now, you have to see that fundamental to Christianity, 
is the concept that the, of the believer's union with Christ, right? A Christian is not just someone who, who thinks that Jesus was a good man, he was a cool guy, you know, he admire him as, as, as a wise teacher. No, a Christian is someone in Christ. That's what the name Christian means. We are in Christ. We are united and joined to Christ. We are one with Christ. Like, remember how we talked about marriage and how it's a picture of Christ in the church, right? We are in Christ and we have become one, one flesh with Him. And just like in marriage, when two become one, right? In a marriage, when two become one, all of the husband's money and property becomes the wife's as well. Right? And so in the same way, when we are one with Christ, we share in His resurrection, His life, and, and, and all that. And the reason why God saved us and made us alive is really because of this. His love, His mercy, His grace, His kindness. You know, it is not at all because of anything that we did. Our salvation is all of Him, none of us. Completely, 100% unmerited, undeserved favor of God. Grace. And, and let's look at the last three verses of this, this section. Um, the verses that I like to make you memorize for Word with Friends. I think verses 8 to 10 clearly shows the plan of salvation. Okay? Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved. By grace. You know, absolutely nothing you can do will save yourself. Salvation cannot be earned. Even though many people, even Christians, try to earn it. You know, they try and they try and they strive and they strive until they believe that they deserve it on some level. But you know, I believe this, this truth that salvation is only by grace, this is actually what hinders a lot of people from Christianity. Because it, it's kind of offensive, right? Because many people believe that they've done enough good or they have at least done not enough bad and so they somehow deserve at some level to go to heaven, right? I don't know if you've, if you've heard people say things like, you know, this guy, he had his faults, but ultimately he was a good man, so I'm sure he's in heaven now. I'm sorry, no. Not unless he put his faith in Jesus. It's not about your deeds at all. Remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus? I'm pretty sure he wasn't a good man. That's how he ended up there. But he recognized his sin. He said to the other criminal on the other side of Jesus, he said, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but not this man, not Jesus. And he recognized his sin. Then he cried out to Jesus in that moment of repentance, in that moment of faith. He said, remember me. That little bit of faith, remember me. And Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. And he got in without going to church, without knowing much at all, without any you know, form of religion, simply because of grace. Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. For by grace, you have been saved. You know, what this means is that all the good deeds in the world, all the good deeds that you have done cannot help you at all. But what it also means is that all the bad things you have done cannot stop you at all. For by grace you have been saved. It's either the most offensive thing to you 
or the most liberating thing that you hear. Because we can be offended in our pride, think, wow, oh, but I work so hard to be good, you know. I try so hard. I read my Bible every day. I read every single article on thirst or desiring God. Or I pray like two hours a day. But that guy, that thief on the cross, I mean that jerk who just said the sinner's prayer like two minutes before he died, doesn't deserve it. Or we can say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a corpse like me. For by grace, you are saved through faith. And you know, I want to point out that even faith is a gift. Even faith is a gift. The Bible is very clear. Look at verse 8. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. In fact, in the, in, if you read the NIV, it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And then there is a dash. And this, and this not from yourselves. This faith is not even from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So it's not like, um, okay, God does his part, and then man does his part, and then you plus it together, and it leads to salvation. No, it is all God's doing, not by our works at all, so that no one can boast. Because what in the world do we have to boast about when we were dead in our sin, we were enslaved, and we were condemned? And so even when we come to church and, you know, we, we, we follow all the rules or we tithe and, and, and we behave, well, all that is good. But they are nothing to boast about. They don't earn our salvation at all. And it's not that those things are bad. It's just that they don't save us. Jesus Christ saved you. It was 100% His effort and not yours. It was a finished work when He hung on the cross and He said, it is finished. As he declared then, we can add nothing to it. And so when we get to heaven, no one can say, yeah, I deserve to be here. You know, I, I, I lived a pretty good life. I earned my way here. No, salvation is completely dependent on God because even faith is not doing. Faith is receiving. Right? A gift has to be received. And, and in the same way, you, you can reject the gift. Right? There are people who reject it. There are people um, who say, no, I, I don't want it. And that's why. That's why some people are still dead in their sin. But grace, grace is a gift. And it's like how in Ephesians 1.5 it says, remember last week, it says that we were adopted as God's sons. Right? And I think adoption is, 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 is a great picture of, of God's gift to us. Because, you know, the child or the baby does absolutely nothing to deserve the adoption. I mean, he's a baby. He doesn't even have the ability to do anything. But God, the good Father, rich in His mercy, love, grace, and kindness, said to this baby, this random, abandoned baby, I'm going to call you my son and my daughter. It is a gift. It is not a reward. And then let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, We are God's workmanship. Right? We, the work is all God's. It's nothing of our own. Right? We are God's workmanship. And therefore, because we are God's workmanship, the result is good works. You know, the, the good works, the, the being a good person, living a good life, doing good things and all that, all that is a consequence of salvation, not a condition. It is a consequence. It is a result of salvation. We don't need good works to be saved, but we are saved for good works. 
So it's not that we do good so that we can enter heaven, but we do good because we are going to heaven. And so you see, when a Christian does good works, you know, when we, when we help and, and care for people and we, you know, we, we try to reach the community in Teban Gardens or we, we go on mission trips and we, we feed the poor, etc., it's not like just some community service we do to rack up some brownie points or to show the world that we're, we're decent people or, or, we, or to help us feel better about ourselves that, that you know, we're, we're, we're actually quite good. It's not about trying to earn some karma. You know, we do good so that hopefully it makes up for our bad deeds. No, our good works demonstrate, they show the reality of our faith. It is a natural overflow because of the good that God has done in us. And so we do good works because we are saved, not in order to be saved. Our good works spring from God's good work done in us. And we bless others because He has blessed us. And you know, this is something that, that I, I experience in my life every day because by nature, by my natural human nature, I'm just really not a nice person. You know, I'm just, I'm not naturally a people person. I don't, I'm, I don't love people naturally. I, in fact, I, I hate people. Okay, I mean, I um, get easily annoyed with people. You know, I'm impatient and I'm horrible. And yet, God has called me to be a pastor. What a joke. <laughs> and it is simply, simply because God first loved me. And any ounce of love and, and care I have from people, I can tell you it comes not from me. It comes completely from God who first loved me because there's nothing, there's nothing good inside of me to, to kind of like work up to love people. It's all from God. That's why the Bible says we are God's workmanship. We do good works because of the good work God has already done and first done in us. So let's summarize this first section of verse 1 to 10, okay? What did we used to be? We were dead. But God, rich in mercy, love, kindness, in His amazing grace, made us alive. And that's what we've become. We've become alive. We've become resurrected. We are born again. Now, what does this mean for us on an everyday basis? You know, as we read this passage, I want to urge us all really to not forget and not minimize the greatness of salvation. You know, may we never lose the wonder of salvation. Even when we've been Christians for years and years, we've grown up in church, we've heard it all, let's not lose the wonder of salvation. When we became Christians, we were saved from death, from bondage and slavery, from condemnation. And instead, we've come alive. Come alive, come alive. <laughs> Is the song still hot? You know, it's not just like, oh, um, we became a Christian and there were like some moral reforms in my life. You know, like one day I decided to sort out my life a bit, you know, improve my life with, with some religion. No, salvation is not behavior modification. It's not. It's not about becoming a more decent person. It's about resurrection and new life. It's about rising up from the dead. Because we were dead, we were hopeless, we were gone, we were unable to save ourselves. But God, and He rescued us from the pit, the pit of death and destruction. And he made us alive and he called us his sons and daughters. And you know, if we, if we don't forget the wonder of salvation, 
I think it really helps us, you know, sometimes, just imagine this, okay? If, if, if like one day, you know, I, I, I saved Leah's life, right? I dramatically and I don't know, like I died for her or I, whatever, okay? I saved her in a dramatic way, right? Do you think five years later, she would be like, oh, where's this Joanna? I don't feel her anymore, you know? I, I, recently, I haven't been feeling her, you know? Yeah, yeah, she died for me, but I haven't, do you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? Right? If we never lose the wonder of salvation and we never get caught in this like, God, why recently? You've been so far from me. And like, if God does nothing else for us, all that he has done in his resurrection is enough. He's proved his love completely, completely saved you. You were dead. He brought you alive. Everything else is a bonus. Dead to life. And therefore, because we've been saved, because we are his workmanship, let us do the good works that God wants us to do. And that is the basic message of Christianity. All right, so that's the first section. And now we're going to move on to verses 11 to 22. Are we all good? You still with me? Verses 1 to 10, they talk about salvation. Now, verses 11 to 22, they go on to focus on the work of Christ, particularly for the Gentiles. Okay, is anyone here a Jew? No, okay, so we're all Gentiles, okay? We are all non-Jews, right? And I think the next part is important because as Christians, you know, we're not just strangely following some, some weird Jewish religion, you know? We need to know how this faith that has obvious Jewish roots is relevant to us, okay? Now, if you read the Old Testament... Right, you will know that the nation of Israel, the, the Israelites, right, the Jews, which comes from the word Judah, by the way, they enjoyed a special privilege before God. Right? They were God's chosen people. They were a people set apart for God. And these people, they had all these practices and, and customs and laws that were supposed to distinguish them from the other nations. Okay? For example, circumcision. Circumcision was a big deal. And guys, you will understand that circumcision is a big deal. Right? This is what set the Jews apart from all other races, all other nations, even today. Even today. And that's why, if you look at verse 11, we see that they call the Gentiles the uncircumcised. That's not a term of endearment, you know? They called them the uncircumcised, that the, the Jews took pride in being people of God. And to them, Gentiles were unbelieving, uncircumcised pagans who didn't know the true God. But you know what the Jews had forgotten? Was that right in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, in the Abrahamic covenant, right, in the covenant that God made with Abraham, God said he chose this one nation to be a blessing to all the other nations. It wasn't that he chose them and they just keep the blessing for themselves and shun everyone else. God said to Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. That was the plan. That's why God sent the Messiah, the Savior, to the Jews. Right? That's why Jesus' salvation will come from the Jews. That all nations will be blessed through him. But unfortunately, the nation of Israel, they only paid attention to that part about them being a chosen nation. Right, the, the favoured nation, and they actually despised and, and dis detested the non-Jews. 
You know, the separation between Jew and Gentile was so bad that even if Gentiles said, okay, I want to worship your God, you know, even if Gentiles wanted to worship the God of Israel, they could only stay in the outer courts of the temple. Okay, so let me show you um, the temple. Okay, so this is, this is like a, a model of what the temple would look like. Okay, if you look at the built-up... Oh, wait, wait, let me use this. Da-da-da. Okay, if you look at the built-up part, right, this part here, only Jews can go inside. Okay, so if you are a Gentile, like all of us, you can only stay outside here. Courtyard, courtyard. That's all. Court of the Gentiles. Okay, you cannot go further inside. And you know, this court of the Gentiles was where... Um, do you remember that, that, that uh, the incident where Jesus literally flipped tables, right? And he made the whip and all that uh, because they, they were like money lenders and, and people selling pigeons and sheep. So they were selling it here, right? In this courtyard, right? And he said, and, and he was so angry because that was the only place that Gentiles could pray and they had turned it into a marketplace, okay? Can you imagine like, like the Gentiles say, okay, we want to worship God and we say, oh, sorry, sorry, uh, you can only stay outside at the door there, okay, that side, and, and you can only pray from there, okay? And then we say, oh, by the way, out there, we're selling some books, and we're selling some cookies, and we're selling whatever, but oh, sorry, that's the only, that, that's how it was like. That's why Jesus was so angry. The Gentiles couldn't go any further in, and Jesus said, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? That's what he said when he whipped that. I mean, he, he made the whip and, and he chased them all out. Now, can you look at this? Can you, can you see here? It says the fence with inscriptions, right? So it was, it was this build-up area was for the, the Israelites and surrounding it was a fence, okay? It was a fence, like do not trespass, okay? And, and this fence, um, in, in fact, uh, this, it was like on an elevated platform. So these are like steps. Okay, elevator platform, uh, and there was a, f- a fence. Oh, let me show you another, another um, picture. Okay, so from the, the, the top view, whatever this view is called, uh, it's like this, right? Outer court, Gentiles, um, here, only for the Jews. Here are the women, court of the women, which means they, this is the furthest they can go. Okay, and then this one, court of Israel, the, the males. And then this yellow thing, Oh, sorry, the, the red thing is only for the priests. Okay, so if you're not a priest, you can't go in. In the middle, the, the yellow thing is the holy of holies. Only the high priest can go in, only once a year. Okay? Um, and, and, and so around this, uh, this, this thing, okay, there was a wall, and it had this inscription. <laughs> I can't <laughs> maneuver this pointer. Okay, it had an inscription here. So all, it was a wall all around. And all around there were these inscriptions, okay? And what did the inscription say? It says, No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary, and whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. So this was a warning to the Gentiles, like, like you know those do not trespass signs, right? It was a warning to the Gentiles. It basically said, you cross this wall, you die, and it is your own fault. That's what you're saying. I guess if they cross the wall, I don't know, the, all the Jews will kind of beat them up or like kill them or whatever. And that's why in verse 14, Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility. This is the dividing wall of hostility. It really is hostility, 
right? It's not just a wall. It's like you cross this, you die. Dividing wall of hostility. And so access to, into the temple, into the presence of God was forbidden to the Gentiles on pain of death. They could only remain in the outer courts at a distance, far away. You see, all of humanity, we are separated from God because of sin, right? And that's what the different courts in the temple um, reflect. That's why only the high priest can go all the way in because he's supposed to be the one with, you know, I guess the least sin. So you can go all the way into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. But the Gentiles were even further away. They were separated not just from God, they were separated from the people of God as well. There was a dividing wall of hostility. You know, interestingly, shortly after writing Ephesians, um, Paul was actually arrested. He was accused and then arrested of doing this, of bringing a Gentile past this wall. Okay, the, bringing an Ephesian guy called Trophimus through this gate. You can read about it in Acts chapter 21. And it was, it was actually a false charge. He didn't do that. But actually, on a metaphorical level, Paul brought thousands of Gentiles past the gate by preaching the good news to them that Jesus Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And you know, if you think about Paul, right? Paul was as Jewish as you can get, okay? He was like, a purebred, super Jewish Jew, right? He says, he calls himself in Philippians, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He was a Pharisee, which meant that he belonged to this exclusive club within the exclusive people. He was like totally in the inner, inner circle. And so by right, he would have wanted absolutely nothing to do with the other side. So imagine this guy, this Hebrew of Hebrews, he is writing this letter of Ephesians to the uncircumcised Gentiles, and he's saying, hello from the other side. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. He's saying, hey, there's no more other side. There's no more two sides. We are no longer strangers and, and aliens and all that. You know, you're, we are fellow citizens. We are family now. And that was a radical message, a radical message from Paul. And so just like the gospel message can be offensive to some but liberating to others, the message that Jew and Gentiles are now one would be potentially very offensive to the Jews and yet liberating to the Gentiles. You know, because to the Jews and, and possibly to the Gentiles too at the time, this is what the Gentiles used to be. Verse 12, they were separated from Christ excluded from citizenship, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, that's what the ESV says, foreigners, strangers to the covenants of promise. It means all those covenants in the Bible, sorry, it doesn't apply to you, right? Without hope, without God, they had no hope because they had no God. They had no hope because there was nothing to look forward to except the grave. And so you see in verse 1 to 10, the first part, the problem of sinful humanity was spiritual death. But in the next part, the additional problem of Gentiles was spiritual distance from God. And that's why in verse 13, Paul says the Gentiles were far off. They were far away. And so all this is what we used to be, separated by a dividing wall of hostility. But, but 
God, but Jesus Christ. But, verse 13. Oh, sorry, I, I pressed wrong. Okay. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we are no longer far off, we're no longer separated, but we're brought near and we're reconciled. Jesus brought reconciliation and Jesus brought peace. Right? This idea of peace as reconciliation. Verse 14, Christ is our peace. Verse 15, Christ made peace. Verse 17, Christ came and he preached peace. You know, the gospel is a gospel of peace. That's why we read chapter 6, right? When we are told to put on the armor, the spiritual armor of God, it talks about the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Because the good news is about resurrection, but it is also about reconciliation. And Christ has bridged the biggest gulf known to mankind. You know, we sing the song, The chasm is far too wide. I never thought I'd read the air to say, right? That's what, he's bridged that chasm. He's bridged that gulf. There was a huge gap between man and God, and Christ bridged it. Because there was no other way that gulf could have been bridged. And now, we have been brought near. We can be near to God. We can be close to God, not far off. And we used to be distant. We used to be separated. But Christ, in Christ, He made the difference. And verses 14 to 18 go on to speak of a, a reconciliation between God and man, as well as a reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Right? So we're no longer dead, we're alive, we're no longer distant, we are, we, are, we, are, we are reconciled and brought near. Now, I'm just going to go through verses 14 um, to, to, uh, to the end a little bit more, uh, in, in a little bit more detail. Okay, can you stay with me? Follow along with your Bibles, okay? Look at verse 14. When Jesus died, he broke down in his flesh with his body on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. The wall was torn down, and so now Gentiles can go into the presence of God and not just stay far away in the outer courts, right? Verse 15, how did Jesus do it? He, by abolishing the law with its commands and regulations, okay? He stopped this system of Jewish laws that, you know, over the years had become so complicated and twisted and that it hindered rather than helped people go close to God. You see, the ceremonial laws, like, like the animal sacrifices, the dietary restrictions, you know, the Sabbath laws, things like circumcision, those were ceremonial laws. They, they were out, outward, external signs that were supposed to reflect the inward reality of their faith. But these laws in themselves are not proof of faith. You are not a follower of Christ because you are circumcised, because you, you, know, you eat kosher food. No, it's an outward sign, but it's meant to reflect an inward reality. But it was also these ceremonial laws that set the Jews apart from other nations. And here Paul is saying, in Christ, there is no more need for that. All you need to be saved, to be in God's family, is Jesus Christ. And so in verse 15, we read that in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, they become one man. One man. It's not that now the Gentiles are, have become Jews, Right? It's not like they, they join in the Jews, but it's one new humanity in Christ. One body, the body of Christ. You know, this idea of one body, 
Um, chapter 1 talks about it as well, right? Christ is the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Okay, chapter 4, um, my next sermon, we're going to read again that there is one body. Christ is the head from whom the whole body is joined and held together. And so Jesus abolished the law as a requirement for salvation, right? Verse 16 says, Jesus killed the hostility caused by these laws and now anyone can come to Christ through faith. And verse 16 says, it was Christ's body that was sacrificed and destroyed on the cross in order to create one new body. Sacrifice his body to create one new body, one new humanity. And so it doesn't matter what, what your background, your, your race, your culture is. Christ has reconciled us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. And verse 17 says, he brought peace and reconciliation to both Jew and Gentile. And then in verse 18, it says, through Christ, we both, both Jews and Gentiles now, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Access. Remember before, the, the, the Gentiles had restricted access. They had limited access only in the outer courts. Do you realize what a big deal this is? That previously, only the high priest had access into the Holy of Holies. And even him, he only could go in once a year. And that was after like, why well, he has to like, I don't bathe how many times and do all this like ritual cleansing and, and, and you know, detailed preparation. But now in Christ, every believer has the privilege of going right into the Holy of Holies, into the direct presence of God. And we can talk to God at any time. You know, we don't have to like go to a physical temple we don't have to like put on some ceremonial robes or whatever. We can be lying in bed talking to God. We can talk to Him on the bus. We can be like in some God-forsaken island called Takong. And we can still talk to God. Amen? So the army boys. Okay. And of course, the, the irony is that now we have such easy access. And yet sometimes we can't be bothered to spend time with God. So we need to remember what we used to be was far away, separated, alienated. But God, but Jesus Christ, because of what he did, we are now reconciled. And in the last few verses, okay, verse 19 onwards, it talks about our new identity and what we've become. Okay, before... Let me think. Okay. Before, before Gentiles were alienated, from the commonwealth of, of, of Israel, right? The NIV says foreigners excluded from citizenship. But now in verse 19, we are no longer strangers and foreigners. We are fellow citizens. Same citizenship, same kingdom, same country. And in fact, it is not just the same kingdom. Look at verse 19. We are fellow members of the household of God. We are family. And that's why we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we are family. You know, a, a household, a family, is, is a more intimate community than a kingdom, right? And we are children. We're not just citizens. God is our father. He's not just our king. And the church is our family. Remember we said before Christ, we were children of wrath. Now we're children of God, adopted as his, as his son's and daughters. And then look at the last verse of this passage. Verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place 
for God by the Spirit. You know, imagine this. Previously, the Gentiles couldn't even be near God. And now, we are a dwelling place for God. Verse 20, a holy temple. It's like that escalated quickly. We couldn't be near Him, and now we are where He dwells. You know, if you read the Bible, right, God's dwelling place, it used to be the tabernacle, right? If you read the book of Exodus. Um, and then it was the temple, right? Solomon built the temple. And then when Jesus came, it was in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up, right? So he was talking about his body as a temple, temple of his body. And today, God's dwelling place is in the individual believer, right? First Corinthians, remember, it says, don't you know that you yourselves, uh, that your body is a temple, the Holy Spirit. And his dwelling place is also in the church, as we read here in Ephesians. You know, it's not the physical church building, it is the body of Christ, the household of God, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 20, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, because their teaching is what forms um, Scripture, right? The Word of God, which is our authority. And it says, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Do you know what's a cornerstone? Pastor Andrew Yeo from Cornerstone Church says he stones in a corner, okay? But that's not it, right? The cornerstone, dictionary.com says, it is a stone that forms the base of a corner of a building, joining two walls. So instead of a dividing wall of hostility, the cornerstone unites and joins together. Right? Wikipedia says that a cornerstone is also called a foundation stone or a setting stone, and it is the first stone set in the construction of a foundation. And it is important since all the other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. You get the idea, right? Jesus is the cornerstone that holds the building together, holds the church, the body of Christ together. Everything takes reference from Jesus. And the body of Christ is built together for the purpose of being a dwelling place for God. That's the purpose and, and, and what the church is for, to be a dwelling place of God. Because God doesn't dwell in a temple created by human hands. He dwells in His people. Now, let me read to you um, the message version, which, is, which I think paraphrases quite nicely these last, three ver- these last three verses. The message version says, You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. And God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here in what he is building. He used the apostles and the prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. Now, what does this mean for us then in practical everyday terms? You know, as Christians, we have to recognize we are one body. And of course, for practical or or logistical or or various other reasons, um, you know, we have things like different denominations or or different churches um, around the world as well as in Singapore. 
Um, even in PPH, right, we have different services, right? We have first service, second service, youth service, you know, Chinese service. Every service is slightly different. But we must never forget that in Christ, we are all Christians in one body. And we are no longer separated, but we are reconciled to God and we are reconciled with our fellow men. Now, unfortunately, of course, even within the church or among churches, there is still sometimes disunity and discord, right? Christ destroyed the dividing wall of hostility, but sometimes Christians erect new walls of hostility, new barriers. And sometimes in churches, these could be walls of like racism, you know, like, ah, why the Filipino maids or the Telugu construction workers worship together with us, right? Or walls like, oh, yeah, yeah, you are the leaders and we're the non-leaders, so it's like an us versus them kind of mentality. You know, or walls like, you know, having exclusive cliques or groups in the church. And it's sad because the church is precisely the community where there should be no dividing walls of hostility. And if you read the Bible, it's always clear that Jesus wants his people to show the world what true community looks like in love and in unity, right? He said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples when you love one another, right? Remember, just before he went to the cross, he prays for unity among the believers, that we will be one, one body, just as he and the Father are one. But sometimes as a church, which should be a stepping stone to faith, you know, sometimes we become a stumbling block to faith, and we fail to be one body, and when we fail in unity. And so, Lao Jen, I want to urge us, let us not be a community with dividing walls of hostility. And we need to consider, are there, are there barriers, are there walls in Lao Jen that spoil our unity? Are there, are there walls of exclusivity or maybe of quarreling, offense, unforgiveness, judgmental attitudes, jealousy, bearing grudges, you know, like some, maybe like a competitive nature? Are we showing the world what true community looks like so that by our love for one another, all men will know that we are Christ's disciples, that we are Christians. You know, imagine what a powerful testimony it would be to the world and to our friends if when people talk about Christian, the first, the first thing that they think of is not like, oh, these are a bunch of people who are very good at following rules, but wow, these are a bunch of people who really love each other. They are really like a family. You know, like, how can you be so like a family to people who are not related to you by blood? Imagine what a powerful testimony that would be if we can love each other like that. The church of Jesus Christ must be what it should be. One new humanity in Christ. God's family, a model of true community and a dwelling place for God, a community in Christ. Let me summarize. Ephesians chapter 2, the first part. We were dead and now we are alive. We're resurrected. And what does that mean for us as we live our lives? May we never forget the greatness of salvation. May we never forget just how good the good news is. And you know, may we never become numb or unmoved by the gospel message, by the glory of the gospel 
May we never forget that we were dead and hopeless and condemned to face the wrath and judgment of God. But God, that's right, in His mercy, His love, His grace, His kindness, He rescued us. He resurrected us. And so we say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretched corpse like me. You know, I believe that when we understand this, that we would naturally want to tell everyone about Jesus. Like, hey, come and meet the one who brought me from death to life, who gave me life when I was hopeless and wretched and lost and dead. And in the second part, Paul writes about how we were distant, we were far away, we were separated, but now we are reconciled. We are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to fellow men. We are one body. And what does that mean for us as a community of believers? Will we truly live as one family? Will we truly love each other as fellow members of the household of God and show the world what true community looks like? And then by this, will all men know that we are His disciples? Will we remember that we are a dwelling place for God? We're one body, one community in Christ. So let's rise and we're going to pray. Just want us to take a minute or two and think about all that has been said, think about what the word says and the truth and the glory of the word and how that impacts our lives. God, we are so thankful that we can call you Father. We are so thankful that you are rich in mercy because of your great love, because of your kindness and your grace, you have saved us. And so God, would you help us to live really as a saved and redeemed people? Would you help us to live as one body, as a community of Christ? Would you make us truly a dwelling place for you by your spirit? If Jesus is the cornerstone in our community. Father, we pray that as we study and we read this book of Ephesians, that you will continue to speak to us. We believe, God, your word is living and active and is completely relevant to our lives. And so, God, we pray that the truth of your word will cut us to the heart today. And, God, we will remember that we are a people saved, redeemed, that we are a people of Christ. We are a community in Christ. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for all that you have done on the cross. We thank you for your love, your sacrifice, and your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're now going to split up into our CGs. Okay, be community, love each other, pray for each other, and then we can go. Okay?